Welcome Think Biblically podcast listeners. We've got a bonus episode for you today. I recently had a conversation with a very interesting young man. His name is Coleman Hughes. He's an atheist. African-American thinker has one of my favorite podcasts called Conversations with Coleman. He covers a range of cultural issues, kind of like we do on our podcast. But of course, rather than thinking biblically, he looks at it from his atheist worldview. Well, I reached out to him and I said, hey, would you be willing to have a conversation with me just about some of the cultural issues surrounding race and also just surrounding who you are and your faith? And he agreed. So not long ago, we had this conversation and it was not a debate. There's probably a few moments if you listen to this, you think, ah, Sean, you could have pushed back stronger. And that's true. I pushed back a few times, but really just wanted to lead with my first meeting him with just generosity, kindness, give him a platform. He said he really enjoyed it. And then maybe in the future, I can have him back and we can have an even more kind of give and take pushback kind of conversation. Maybe that's coming in the future. But with that said, I think you're really going to enjoy his perspective on this bonus episode. And if you do, as always, we hope you'll consider sharing with a friend. So here's a conversation with Coleman Hughes. Coleman, really honored that you'd come on and join me for conversation today. It's great to be here. And it's, a, it's awesome to see another person that's trying to do what I'm doing, which is hmm. have conversations with people that disagree with you. And, and you know, just seeing, seeing where you are as adults in, a, in, a, in the spirit of goodwill and, and hmm. all that. There's far too little of that in the culture right now. Well, well let's start there. I'm really curious. Uh, two things. Number one, where does your value for these kinds of conversations come from? And second, what gives you confidence? Because to me, uh, we're only willing to engage people who see the world differently. If there's a level of confidence in our own position that's not threatened by somebody who sees the world differently or just a value for truth. So where does that value and that confidence come from for you? So I guess probably two places. One is is probably in my life experience. I, I grew up with two parents that would often argue about very important, you know, societal topics. My my dad was sort of an Ayn Rand guy and then my mom was hmm. pretty much a Marxist. She had me you know, I, I she had me reciting the names Marx and Durkheim when I was five years old. Wow. <laughs> uh, before I could spell Durkheim. And I, rem- I remember being really sort of thrilled by how that name could be spelled as, as something like a five-year-old. So she, she was doing a PhD in, in all those topics. And it never seemed strange to me that two people could love each other and disagree about everything and occasionally concede things to the other and gr- learn and grow as a result. Uh, so, I mean, nowadays that's, I wouldn't say it's unheard of, but it's less heard of, of to marry someone with serious political differences is sort of like marrying someone from a different religion used to be uh, a long time ago, more, more and more. So I guess half of my value of it probably just comes from growing up with it and, and seeing its value in that way and never thinking weird and in fact thinking the opposite perspective is kind of weird hmm. and then the other value comes from the the fact that i know how easy it is to be wrong about something just because mm. um i've been wrong so many times in my life and, and i know 
it's not usually because you're dumb or you're an idiot. It's usually mm -hmm. because you're only looking at ev evidence that confirms your belief. You're in uh, a, a crowd of like-minded people that are reinforcing each other and not looking for, for reasons to be skeptical of whatever the thing is. And in, under those conditions, it's possible to persist in believing something wrong for a pretty long time where intelligence is not at all the issue. So it, it uh, in, which partly answers your ne next question, which is I, I, I don't view it as that much of a threat to my identity or ego if I, if I get something seriously wrong. I mean, obviously I, I do at some level, it's very hard to completely turn that machinery off in your psychology, sure. but um, I usually if I get, get over my initial moment of, of anger that I've gotten something wrong, I'm grateful for hmm. grateful for having, uh, you know, the best, truest arguments because it, it improves you. Um, and so I guess you, you made a com comment about having confidence and um, yeah, I, I suppose I've never viewed myself as necessarily having confidence, hmm. uh, although from the outside, I'm sure it looks like that. But I've, I've always been very interested and attentive to what's true and what the best arguments are. Hmm. And if someone makes a better one that just like it just clicks with you, you understand why you were wrong in the past and you just slowly improve your grasp on reality. Uh, if, if I have any confidence, it comes from years of, of doing that, of, of having been wrong and, you know, understanding why I was wrong in the past. Mm. And just, it's like improving at any skill, basically, but the skill is to grasp reality as it is. It's really interesting to me that you described that your mom was a Marxist growing up. My father actually had a ton of debates by Marxists and as a Christian went to a Marxist education like indoctrination school in Latin America to learn how Marxists thought. This is back, I believe, around the, the 60s. But what my dad would always do, whether it's politics or religion, if I'd have an idea, he'd say, well, son, have you thought about this? If I were skeptic, I'd push back like this. How would you answer? So what you said is it's possible to have arguments without being argumentative. And that's a key distinction that's often not out there. Now, when I hear you describe where you're coming from and your value for following truth, that seems intuitive and obvious to me because I was raised, even though, again, my parents see the world differently, shared that value. Why do you think that's so rare today? Is it because we find our identities in the positions that we hold and just are not trained that? Why? I guess what I'm getting at is why do you think the position you describe, which both of us agree is important, is such a minority or seemingly a minority position today? I'm not so sure it's ever been a majority position. Hmm. Not not that you were necessarily implying that. Sure. But I, you know, I wonder to what degree, you know, Proverbially, they, they killed Socrates for, for having that kind of cast in mind. That's true. Um, you know, so, which is a tongue-in-cheek way of saying most places in, in the world have always been somewhat hostile to the mindset that 
we put truth above everything else, including the the taboos and sacred cows of our culture, whatever that is. Uh, that that has never really been, I guess, the dominant ethos mm-hmm. among people. And I also I also think certain personality types are more prone to it than others. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to want to minimize what you said, which is there is a palpable lack of it in the culture right now, particularly in the places that we've designated as places we devote to this thing. Right. Hmm. Like we've never been under the illusion that all of society is going to operate like a Socratic seminar or like your, your father did with you, you know, always looking at the other side, even steel manning your opponent's positions, right? This is, the whole world is never going to be like this. Um, but we do have spaces called universities that are supposed to more or less operate with the pursuit of truth at, at the top of the value system. Hmm. And in these spaces, these spaces have increasingly become precisely hostile to the kind of person. I mean, playing devil's advocate is is literally frowned upon at every elite Ivy League country uh, college in the country. Right? Mm. Like it's it's literally a a common saying among students that he was one of those assholes that likes to play devil's advocate in class. Right? Which wow. which just means that Anyone who like tries to inhabit the opposing perspective for the sake of it, for the intellectual exercise, which is very important, um, it is, it's, it's literally frowned upon. You are, you are making yourself lower status in that subculture by doing that. So th- this is a, th- it's a problem because that's exactly the kind of space where that's supposed to be encouraged. That sort of thinking mm. is supposed to be encouraged because it's, it's one of the few places and times in your life where you can devote time specifically to the task of engaging with ideas you're unfamiliar with and enriching your philosophy of life and, and, and the, the ideas that you uh, sort of, the, the, idea, the ideas you're familiar with. Hmm. So uh, a question I'm curious about, is you buck the trend in a couple ways on your views. Number one, you're an atheist. Now, I would venture to say probably that's a minority position within the black community. Historically, the church seems to have been very important to the black community, but also you seem to hold uh, views about race and maybe politics that would be at odds with the larger black community. First off, am I right about that, broadly speaking? If so, is easy, either one of those harder or more challenging to navigate just as an intellectual or as a, as a person? That is a great question. Many different ways to answer it. So, interestingly, I would say, in the, in, if you look at the total U.S. African-American population, my views on politics are probably less controversial than, than being an atheist still. Hmm. Like if I went to the average 
black family reunion in South Carolina, probably my being an atheist would be more of a minority position than the things I would say about racism. Okay. Now, the reason, the, the reason uh, that may be surprising to people, people are thinking, well, no, uh, come on, Coleman, like so many more people, if you, if you uh, were saying systemic racism is not as big a problem as they say, racism is exaggerated, um, that the problem is culture, so many people would push back against you uh, on this. That's true. But far fewer people would push back against that in private than would in public. I mean, again, if you like black American, black Americans, black Democrats are far more conservative than white Democrats in their beliefs on pretty much everything. Hmm. Uh, even though black people vote 90% for Democrats as a block. Um, so there is this phenomenon with which, which John McWhorter has also talked about of uh, in the black community, you're supposed to talk one way in public and one way in private. Privately, you can acknowledge that, okay, you know, over 60% of kids born out of wedlock, like n nothing is going to happen until the family structure is, hmm. is, uh, you know, is remedied and it starts in the home and all of that stuff is none of that stuff is actually controversial in black only spaces. It's controversial to say it publicly where quote unquote white people can overhear hmm. because then you're airing dirty laundry in public and you're a traitor. And, but, but he, the thing about being a, an atheist less true than it was probably in my dad's generation is that he, that is still taboo privately and publicly. That's taboo mm -hmm. uh, in every sense. Hmm. Does that make sense? That, that does make sense. That's such a fascinating way to look at it that I had, had not thought of. So let, let me take a step back. You might have answered this a little bit, but tell us a little bit for my audience who maybe is just getting introduced to you a little bit more about who you are and in particular, some of your beliefs, if you're raised by a mother who's a Marxist, would seem to be very different, at least politically and on racial issues, unless I'm mistaken about some of those, although Marxism would be an atheistic system. Tell me at the heart, introduce my audience, who is Coleman Hughes? What are the experiences you had that shape who you are and that tend to shape the way you think, why you think the way you do? Mm -hmm. So I'm from New Jersey. I'm from a very nice, diverse, um, blue, politically blue suburb in New Jersey called Montclair. And uh, basically a suburb of New York. And I guess long story short, have a great family, had a great childhood. Hmm. Um, I was always interested in music and also philosophy, essentially. Those are my two um, interests, really, as a kid, and ended up uh, graduating high school and going to the Juilliard School for Jazz for a little while before leaving, transferring to Columbia and doing a philosophy degree, where I started writing about race uh, and, and racial issues. And what provoked me to start 
writing was, you know, it was never something I was actually interested in. I, I thought, I always thought race was pretty boring. As a kid, I, I effortlessly has, had friends of different races and uh, it never, it never seemed, race never seemed relevant except for, you know, making the occasional stupid joke. Um, but when I got to Columbia and even before it, I started encountering this a really strange, different trend um, that has gone by the you know social justice, wokeness, all of these sure. names, which basically said, really for the first time in my life, your race makes you a special victim. You have to lean into your racial, gender, sexual identity as much as possible. Make it the most important thing about you notice every micro example in which the way the world might be unfair towards you as a result of your identity, some of which are real, some of which are imagined and really just center that center that as a, in your social and psychological life. That that's a way of being that no, no one in my family had really taught me to models. Huh. But I got it from, uh, you know, from, from professors at Columbia, from other students that had gotten it from professors or, or from Tumblr, from the internet. And so it was this kind of new identity you could take on as a noble victim, essentially, uh, only insofar as you had an identity card to, to, to cash it out with. And the whole thing struck me as uh, I, I understood what was seductive about it, but it struck me as a pose that was not based on any real oppression. Hmm. And in the, and, and I can really say that of the kids that did it at Columbia where I was, it was a pose based on zero actual oppression, right? Like wow. the most, privilege you could possibly have to be on Columbia's campus, to be in the top you know, 1% of students that go to the most elite university um, in the, you know, in like the safest time it's ever, there's ever been to live in New York. It's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing the opportunities at our feet. And they were, many kids were speaking as if they were my grandfather growing up in Jim Crow. It's like they, they had more of a victim complex co complex than my grandfather did. Wow. Which, which, which was amazing to me. And it was, it was shocking and it cried out for an explanation. What is going on here? Something huge is going on and I need to understand it. So that's why I started uh, writing about race. Uh, when I was at Columbia, I started writing for Quillette's online magazine. Yeah. From there for some other other uh, major newspapers and started a podcast and that's who I am. So again, if you're tracking this conversation, hit pause and go to either YouTube or where you get your podcast and subscribe to conversations with Coleman. It is one of the podcasts I regularly listen to thoroughly enjoy. Even times when we may differ on issues, I feel like you give a fair shake to people. You care about truth and I've seen you publicly like, 
Yeah, no, you do. I've seen you publicly change your mind when presented with evidence, which I think is is commendable. We're going to come back. You mentioned race and writing on this, and a lot of your podcasts cover this. We're going to come back to some of the issues like white supremacy, critical race theories, uh, police brutality. I want to just get your thoughts on this. But first, you also describe yourself as an atheist. I think a lot of my audience would be interested in just how you answer some of the big questions. For example, I realize this is a huge question, but having studied philosophy, you obviously thought about this a lot. The philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? As an atheist, how do you approach the question of the origin of the universe? Yeah, so the the answer to the question on its face, why is there something rather than nothing, is I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> and it's it's a... Uh, it's a deep mystery that hmm. we may never solve and we may in principle be unable to solve okay. because you know, I don't, I don't think that it has to be true that every answer is, uh, every question that we could pose is answerable by us or that if we, if we got the answer, we would understand it, you know, cause I, you know, I'm not, I don't think humans occupy the, I don't think we're the most intelligent possible life forms. And if that's true, then it's, it's probably true. There's a lot of questions that we wouldn't even understand the answer to if we, if we, uh, if we saw it, like if you tried to explain calculus to a, to a chimp, it's just, there's, there's no point. Right. And there are probably things that are like calculus are to chimps to us um, that we're just never gonna, we're never even going to scratch the surface of and, that might be one of those questions and, and the origin of consciousness okay. might be another one of those mm. questions. But as an atheist, uh, I guess what I would say is I'm not sure how, how a religious person is, is, uh, or how, how God solves the, solves the mystery. Right. Cause it seems to just push the question back further. Right. Like, is there, if, if, if God, is the reason there's something rather than nothing, then I guess you could just change the question. The question effectively becomes, why is there a God rather than no God? Hmm. Which, which then just becomes the analogous mystery for, for theists. So it, it's a mystery and, and I'm not sure, it really makes a difference whether you're an atheist or, or a religious person to, to how deep that mystery is. This is a whole conversation we could we could probe into, but I'm curious if that if your answer to this one is more agnostic, you're not sure, don't have an answer to it. Why don't you consider yourself an agnostic versus an atheist? And when you say you're an atheist, there's even debate about the term. What do you mean by that term? Oh yeah, so I'm. I guess by atheist I mean someone who doesn't believe in God the same way I, I don't believe in, you know, like I, I'm not agnostic about Zeus and Athena and, okay. um, and, and, and most religious people aren't, aren't agnostic about, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the monkey God of, you know, some whatever. Sure. <laughs> so I, I would acknowledge it. I mean, it's, it's possible theoretically that God exists. It's just, to the extent that I've seen no evidence for it, I put the Christian God in the same category I put as Zeus and Athena, namely 
stories that can be deeply inspiring and moving and that I like origin myths that are powerful, but are not literally true. Okay. Is there any evidence you've seen that gives you pause? And I ask because people like Christopher Hitchens, the late new atheist, I heard him, I can't remember if it was a debate or interview. Actually, it was an interview with Doug Wilson. He said it was the fine-tuning of the universe where there's certain constants in physics that exist within a narrow range to allow life. Like, that gave him pause, and he thought that was a good argument. Didn't buy it, but gave him pause. People like C.S. Lewis, uh, former atheist, obviously became a Christian. It was things like music, and I know you describe your background in jazz to him pointed towards something that was transcendent, that couldn't be captured in the physical. Uh, is there anything about the theistic worldview that kind of gives you pause or is it just you find no reason whatsoever to embrace it? So I think I, two things give me pause in two different ways. One is in the psychological value of religion. Hmm. I like insofar as you believe every person has a soul and um, everyone's soul is is importantly connected to God it's it's then very easy easy to believe very useful things in life very pro-social very warm uh, beautiful things like everyone has good within them like insofar as you get rid of all of the 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 bits of religion that are that would cause a good person to act worse such as the homophobic elements and and the misogynistic elements of, of scripture you get rid of those and you you just keep it to the core of everyone has an eternal soul that you you should do good when no one's watching um, all of these things are very good ways to be, and it, it's difficult. I, I don't think secular culture has matched, uh, hmm. has sort of matched them with beliefs that would necessarily get you to act that way in every case. Hmm. Um, so that's one thing that gives me pause is, is it just, is, is it better to, move through the world psychologically believing uh, certain aspects of religion. Okay. And, and then I guess a, a, a mystery that gives me pause is, is why, why there's consciousness at all. Mm. Like, and by consciousness, I mean the, the feeling of what it's like, the feeling that it's like something to be this body. Hmm. Right, that it, there's some there's a perspective it's like from the inside mm -hmm. is is something that science has no explanation for I think um, because you can perfectly well scientifically you can imagine all the machinery of a human body from the atoms on up working perfectly well like a machine and you can understand why everything happens starting with physics, you can understand it at the level of biology, you can understand it at the level of chemistry, but nowhere in any of those sciences is there a law that suggests when all of this comes together, it's gonna feel like something to be that hunk of atoms. 
Right? Mm-hmm. It's, there's going to be a subjective first-person experience. There's nothing in physics or biology that that really explains why, given that the same atoms inside me are are inside like hunks of are inside stars and and just inanimate objects, why it's why there's something it's like to be this hunk of atoms as opposed to a, a lifeless hunk of atoms. So that's a deep mystery that has not come, it's not even close to being explained by anything in science. And again, I might put it in the category of mysteries we we won't ever understand and can't understand in principle. That's really interesting that the origin of the universe is a mystery and also the origin of consciousness. As a Christian apologist, it probably wouldn't surprise you that I think there's a good plausible explanation for these within the theistic worldview, mm-hmm. but that's something we could come back to. I appreciate that honest, honest response from you. Two other questions about religion, then we'll jump back to some of the issues of, of race is oftentimes, as you know, I'm sure you've taken a ton of classes on philosophy that intersect with religion and metaphysics. One of the big question is where morality comes from. And I could simply ask you, do you believe in objective morality on an atheist? How do you ground this? But I want to kind of approach it through the back door and ask the question, why would something like racism be wrong on an atheist worldview? Now, before you answer that, I want to make sure nobody hears me saying that I think atheists are more racist. Not my point whatsoever. You and I are talking about what's called the grounding problem. Where does right and wrong come from? Does it actually exist? Do we have moral values and duties, et cetera? So that's the question I'm getting at through the lens of kind of race. So I guess as a Christian theist, I'd answer this by saying God made us in his image. We all have value and we're called to love one another. And racism is an act of impartiality, mistreating somebody that we shouldn't treat that way. That would be like a quick Christian theist response to why racism would be wrong. And I realize that raises a ton of other questions. But how would you approach and answer that as an atheist? Yeah, so I guess a couple ways. One would be that ultimately, as an atheist, I ground questions of right and wrong in the notion of human suffering and human flourishing, hmm. which I think are, are concepts you don't need God or religion to understand the general shape of and to be motivated, to be motivated by. Um, so that's, that, that's where I would, you know, what, what's good is what increases human flourishing and what's bad is what decreases it, what increases suffering. And, and, you know, broadly speaking, racism increases suffering and it definitely in the long run. Um, and it, when it comes to what is the reason we should treat people the same? Well, scientifically, we are all of the same species, right? There was, people didn't understand this for a long time. They actually thought people of different races were, yeah, literally came from, from different branches of the evolutionary tree. But we understand that to be untrue right now. And um, it, it's, it's illogical to treat people differently because of their skin color. And it's, it's immoral because you are increasing the sum of human suffering in the world by mistreating someone for bad reasons. 
It's a great, concise response. If I had one follow-up that would help, as a, mm-hmm. I think you and I would agree on the importance of human flourishing. I would look at human flourishing and say there's a God who made us and intends for us to flourish as human beings. So there's teleology and purpose built into the universe. Mm-hmm. Where does my obligation come from to care about your flourishing or somebody else in a universe without God? So where does your obligation to care about my suffering come in? Yeah, or somebody else's. Is there actually an objective moral obligation to care about human flourishing? If somebody decided they want to be like Machiavelli and the prince and just kind of deceive for personal gain, what obligation is that person breaking? So I, I, I think the word obligation is is confusing me a little here because on a, at face value, there is none, right? As, okay. an, as an atheist, an obligation literally is, you know, it, it, it kind of implies somebody out there making you do it or telling you you had to do it, but there's no one out there that tell, is going to tell you you had to, you know, save the drowning baby that you're, you know, walking past rather than get your shoes wet, um, e- even if it means getting your shoes wet, right? There's no one in the universe, I, I think, that is going to tell you you have to do that because I told you it's your duty. Nevertheless, I think we have a duty to our our fellow human beings and animals because we know that they're capable of suffering just like we are. And that if it's in our power to help, we absolutely should do that. If should means anything, we should do what's, what's in our power to help the people around us. And, um, you know, the, I, I do think this it comes down to a rule that is in, you know, Christianity as well as, as Buddhism and, and other places, you know, that you want to treat, you understand that people are similar to you and you want to treat them how you, you would want to be treated. Hmm. So one more question. You mentioned Christianity. Do you have an opinion? We're recording this around the holiday seasons, around Christmas. Do you have an opinion or thoughts about who Jesus was and why? So that's a very interesting question. I haven't done any research on the historical Jesus. Okay. Um, but I've, you know, I've paid attention to what people say, you know, there, there are people that say the historical Jesus, uh, didn't exist at all, probably. And, um, that seems unlikely to me. I think it's much more likely that if I were to bet my money, if I had to bet money on who, who Jesus was as an atheist, I would say he was probably an extremely charismatic, um, man that said many wise and inspiring things and developed a following. And probably many of those sayings have been, probably we only have a a loose picture of who he was really because of the game of telephone that is history, um, where what what we think he said probably kind of resembles what he said a little bit. Um, but he was probably a, a a wise and influential spiritual teacher. 
um, who developed a following that eventually uh, became Christianity. Okay. That's fair. I appreciate that you qualify your answer to the amount of research that you've done. I think it's very fair and uh, and commendable. Let, let's shift to another equally sensitive <laughs> topic that you agree to talk about. Let's jump back in into race. And I've heard you talk about this on your podcast, uh, asking other people, but I'm curious how you would respond to the question, is America a racist nation? So that that's it's an interesting question. I like to start from the perspective of the world, which is, uh, I mean, so so let, let me start this again. There, there are two ways to answer that. One is to compare America to other places in the world in terms of how much racism there is and to see where America lies, right? Is America, hmm. is America behind the curve of the rest of the world in terms of how much bigotry uh, our people have in their hearts, how much bigotry is enshrined in our laws? The second way to answer that question is to compare America to a utopia you can imagine in your head uh, where there is no racism and see that racism, see that America is horrible by comparison. Right? We have we have mass shooters. We have whites. We have mass shooters going into synagogues and killing Jewish people. Hmm. We have people, you know, writing the N word on bathroom stalls and you know, all kinds of craziness. Um, you know, I think many people who say America is a is a racist nation are picturing a, a country a perfect utopia in their head and finding that America doesn't live up to it. Hmm. Whereas I've, I've always felt the only relevant comparison is between is the actual alternatives. And this is a, this is a point Thomas Sowell would make a lot. It's like how go live in other places in the world and you will begin to understand that racism is not an American problem, it's a human problem. It's a problem that comes out of some of our tribal instincts to, to, uh, to associate with people similar to ourselves and to view people who, who look different as potential enemies. And that has also been uh, you know, stoked and geared up by ideologues. But truth be told, America is one of the least racist places on earth. And that, I, that wow. some, people, some people find that to be absolutely shocking hmm. if I say that. But, but there, there are places in the world where it's just, okay, so like, let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, to this day, the colloquial word in Arabic for a black person is abad, which is the same word as slave. And the, wow. and the reason the reason for this is mm. because the Arab world had lots of African slavery, which is never talked about. Uh, millions of Africans were enslaved in the Arab world, you know, starting a thousand years ago. And so the word they encountered in the Arab world, they mostly encountered black people, Africans as slaves, as was also true 
in the new world. So it just became the same word. Now, it look at where the West is in terms of reckoning with its slavery, right? We have the 1619 project. We have a museum in, in the nation's capital, have partly funded by the government and heavily funded by um, all kinds of patrons dedicated to the African-American experience with extensive exhibits on slavery. Um, we have, I mean, you know, even 50 years ago, we had uh, Roots, which was a documentary that was the highest rated thing on television at the time and was not surpassed by anything else for, for a pretty long time, mm -hmm. telling the story of a black slave captured, brought to America, forced to work. So this is where the West is on slavery. However bad you want to say uh, we are, if you compare the, the, the soul searching the West has done on the issue of racism and slavery to elsewhere in the world, it, it's impossible to say that we're behind the curve rather than setting the standard and ahead of the curve. Wow. Right, because there's, there is no, there's no soul searching or, or social justice worrying about slavery in, in, in the Arab world. Right, they have, they're, they're still calling black people Abed, you know. Hmm. So, so this is what what I what I don't understand when people say America is a racist nation. It's America is the number one place that people of color around the world want to be. That's a fact. That's a, that's a fact of world migration patterns, right? This is mm -hmm. the number one desired destination for migrants of color around the world. And it's, and so are, are we saying, when we say America is a racist nation, that there is still racism in America? Because that's true. I think there will always be racism, probably everywhere on earth. I think it will, it will dwindle as people become less and less ignorant, but it will never go away. Mm. Just like murder will never go away, right? No, nobody expects a, a world that is free of murderers and murderous rage. It's, it's to me, it's like it's like saying America is like a, a, a rageful nation. It's like, do you, do you think that that's ever going to fully go away? No, we can fight it, and we are fighting it. And I think making still making real progress in terms of the number of people over time that that are uh, that will really sign off on a racist worldview, right? Really say things like, I don't want my kids marrying someone of the other race, right? People, mm. we poll people on this all the time and the numbers have come down, but they're still, you know, for some of these questions, they hover around five, 10, sometimes more percent of, of Americans will, will, will just check the box and say, yep, I do not want my child marrying a black man, for instance. Um, and, and so I don't, and probably the number of people that think that without saying it is probably, probably somewhat higher, but, uh, I don't expect that to ever go away. There's never been a multiracial society on earth without this kind of bigotry and the, the America and the West in general have been on the forefront of pushing back against that worldview, right? So it, it, to me, it's, 
it's mm. it's ignorance of the world that allows someone to say America is a racist nation. And I'm not really sure what they mean by it, if not that. It's really fair and interesting to compare it to some utopian vision and other nations around the world. Our expectations and how we frame the question is going to shape how we respond to it. In these conversations, the topic that always comes up is police violence against black people. And I've heard you do full shows on this. So obviously we could spend a couple hours unpacking it. But as you look at that, what are just some of the key takeaways that you have? Is it like this is a serious issue, needs to be reformed? This is overstated. How do you look at the larger issue of police violence in particular against black people? So basically what I would say about this is my reading of the evidence suggests that black people and black men in particular uh, are much more likely to be harassed by the cops, stopped Mm. without proper cause, treated disrespectfully. Um, So put that in one bucket. In the other bucket, we talk about people who get killed by the cops, shot and killed. This is where the narrative has gotten totally out of control and where the media has been horribly derelict in in its duty to, to attend to the data, which is, which is to say there is, there is not a substantial difference once you account for differences in crime rates between unarmed black people getting killed by the cops and unarmed white people getting killed by the cops. And the reason people, if if you think I'm, if one thinks I'm crazy for saying that, this is partly because the media, the national media almost never reports it when an unarmed white person gets shot and killed by the cops. You know, without, without even looking at the databases, I can guarantee you that in 2021, many, many unarmed white people have been killed by the cops um, and, and you don't know a single one of their names because CNN doesn't report it, uh, MSNBC, you, you probably even Fox in, in, in many cases that doesn't report it. It just stays in the, in, you know, like the local town tribune in, in Arkansas you know, or somewhere. A lot of these sure. things tend to happen more and more in the South actually. Mm-hmm. But it just never reaches escape velocity into national news unless the victim is black, in which case you're hearing about it all over Twitter. Um, and, and obviously the paradigm case of this is the different reactions to the, to the, to the death of George Floyd and Tony Timpa. Tony Timpa was a, a white guy who died in a, a very, very similar way to George Floyd with a cop uh, having his knee on his upper back for 13 minutes. Um, and it was every bit as disturbing as, as the George Floyd video, but just nobody, nationally, very few people care. It didn't become a movement. So we end up getting a skewed picture of, of what the real problem is here. We, we think that the problem is racist killer cops, right? No, the problem, well, the problem is, is a few things. One, it's that it is true that it's, it's historically up till now been extremely difficult for police to face consequences for misbehavior because of how powerful their unions are, mm. because they never rat on each other. And um, 
because it's, it's just very it's very difficult for police departments to police themselves. Um, and so what was that what that has meant is that a lot of police officers and there's a certain kind of police police officer that's attracted to their job precisely because they get to exercise power over other people mm. right there's like mm. there's the cops that go to it because they want to improve the community and then there's the cops that are attracted to the job for mm. because they want an outlet for uh for their tendency to power trip essentially and that contingent of the cops um, has had far too uh, has had a, a much easier time of it historically than they than they should have, mm. and they've exercised that probably more on black men than on a, a, any other demographic. But when it comes to uh, Americans shot dead by the cops. This is an area where really consider in 2021, does any cop in America want to become the next next Derek Chauvin? Does any cop want to completely destroy their life by shooting a, an unarmed black person in an ambiguous circumstance? No. If, if a cop shoots an unarmed black person, it's because they feel their life is in such danger at that moment that they have no better option than to pull the trigger. Hmm. And, and, and another aspect of the conversation that's not talked about, a lot of cops die every year. It's a dangerous job. Cops get shot and killed. Their guns get stolen by people bigger than them who then kill them. Hmm. That happens every year. Every cop knows about it. And it's a dirty job. And it's a difficult job and it's a job that requires a very high level of skill to do to do well we're, we're we have to always keep in mind that we are the, one of the jobs of the cops is to deal with people that are so difficult to deal with that the rest of civilization just taps out and we have a number to call like i, I can't handle this person they're violent, they're confusing. I have no idea how to reach them with words. And we have a number to call to get other people to deal with them. It's, it's, the, it's one of the dirtiest jobs that exists and it's extremely difficult. And you're put into situations where uh, occasionally it's, it's either, it could be either your life or theirs. And you're also put into situations where you, you, you don't know yet if it's a life or death situation, right? Yeah. Where, where someone is, is reaching into their, into their pocket for something that could be a phone or a pencil or a gun. And on the, on the off chance it's a gun, you're not going home to your kids. And, and this is what you're getting paid $40,000 a year for. And okay, the benefits are very good, but most of us, you know, in our jobs are not, I, I really don't like this idea that, oh, well, well, that's just what you sign up for. You sign up to maybe die. I, I just think that's a really easy thing to say if, if that, if you don't, if you're not in a job like that, hmm. you know, that like, like, that's not how we treat 
veterans, right? Well, I don't know. Too bad you signed up to die. <laughs> like, it, it's such a dismissive attitude yeah. towards a, a difficult and important job, a job without which society would not would, would not be able to function. So I have a lot of sympathy for people that are in this position. None of them want to become the next Derek Chauvin. If they're pulling the trigger, they're doing so as a last, last, last resort to change, to save their lives. Except for when they don't, because there are legitimate, real murders sure. by cops. Sure. And um, that absolutely does happen mm. and should be punished to the full extent of the law and increasingly is, which is heartening mm. to see. Um, but in, in any event, this is, this is, and I've gone on for a long time, but this is it's fine. an area where the, the media narrative is really skewed. Right? Nobody ever hears about the six-year-old white kid that gets shot five times through a window. Like that's, that has mm. happened in very recent memory. No one hears about it. No one, there are no protests all around cities asking you to remember their names. And, and again, the problem here is not racist killer cops. It's cops that are poorly trained, cops in some cases that shouldn't be cops, that are just not, not up to the task. Um, put into difficult situations and handling them poorly. And they do it with white Americans. They do it with black Americans, with, with, with Hispanics. You know, the fact that this happens to every race, and it does happen to every race, just look at the Washington Post analysis. It happens frequently to, to members of every race, suggests that the problem is not the cops uh, being racist. The problem is them being put into difficult situations that a subset of them are very bad at handling hmm. and so have to resort immediately to the weapon in order to defend themselves are unable to de-escalate and and so that's what i would say about that that's great yeah that's awesome i got a handful more for you i appreciate you letting me ask you these tough yeah, questions yeah, no but th these these are the questions people are trying to make sense of and we hear discussed and debated all the time do you think we should be a colorblind society? And you can define that and answer that however you want to, but we hear debates about whether we should be colorblind or not. Obviously, we think of Martin Luther King Jr. saying, judge by character, not skin color. Uh, should we aim to be a colorblind society? Yes or no? Why, why or why not? I think the word colorblindness now has become a dirty word in our society. Hmm. It's become... If you say that you want to be colorblind, people just roll their eyes at you now. They're like, oh, God, this guy just really doesn't get it. He's so stuck in the past. He doesn't understand that being colorblind is really is, is actually racist because you're not recognizing my blackness. You're not recognizing the difference. You're not recognizing that I, as a black person, have been a victim of racism and you're choosing not to see my color, but I want you to see my color. Like, this is the perspective that, I, that I'm hearing a lot right now um, in the culture. And I, I think it's a mistake. I think colorblindness, not, not in the sense of I pretend not to see race. Everyone sees race. But in the sense of I really deeply try to treat people without regard to their race. I try to treat people at the same I try to treat people in a race neutral manner. Hmm. 
um, and that your race is not a deep or important part of who you are. To me, that's what colorblindness really is. And that's very important. I mean, we all know that this, like, this means nothing. This, your skin color does not mean anything deep down. And insisting on that is what I would hope colorblindness in the, in the 21st century can mean. Um, there's obviously just a, hu a huge wave of people identifying with their race. O on the left, this is, this comes in the form of racial sort of like a new, like a strong black identity, strong person of color identity. Um, on the far right, it comes in the form of sort of Richard Spencer, alt-right, white identity. And to me, colorblindness is just a rejection of those two things. It's, it's, it's just the embrace of uh, just really insisting that the human family is not and should not be divided by color. Hmm. It's, it's, it's nothing more than the, than the recognition that your best friend or your spouse or your kids can be a different race than you. And that that need not be a barrier at all to your relationship or closeness with them, right? Like your closest relationships in the world can be with a person of another race. If, if you ever needed a demonstration that race is superficial, that's it right there. So I think colorblindness needs to update from the I don't see color um, phrase, which is sort of misleading and confusing for people because you do see color, right. into just the insistence that I don't care about color. I, I hmm. really strive to treat people around me equally. And maybe sometimes I fail, but I try and we hmm. should all try. And we should not abandon the effort, which is what some people want us to do. Some people have become cynical about this issue. They say there's racism out there, so screw it. I'm going to just recede into my race. If, if you're playing this game, I'm going to play this game too. And I'm going to do it without any effort or pretense at being race neutral in the world. So colorblindness is a rejection of that. I think that's a great response. I do love that you said uh, we try to treat people impartially, but sometimes fall short. This is the one thing cancel culture doesn't allow. You get pegged a racist, it's all over the internet, and like your reputation and your life is done. What you're saying is let's calm down a little bit. Let's be willing to let people make some mistakes because there's bigger things at play uh, to have these kind of genuine relationships. So at least that's partly what I heard you saying on top of it. I got a couple more for you. Want to respect your time. Uh, I've On my show, I've had probably two or three conversations on critical race theory. I've had a number of other race conversations. Whenever I do that, I tend to hear from some people that the topic even in itself uh, is missing the mark of where real injustice is taking place. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a way for people, in particular white people, to avoid 
really dealing with the heart of the issue when it comes to race relations. Now, I've seen and I listened to your interview with Christopher Rufo. So obviously you care about race relations, but you also have concern about critical race theory, if I read that correctly. So as a whole, I know this is a huge topic, but should we be concerned about critical race theory? Uh, Should we not be concerned? Why or why not? So critical race theory, what it... uh what it really is, it's an academic philosophy Mm -hmm. that uh, comes out of a different uh, collection of like left-wing ideologies from the 70s and 80s. And without going into it in too much detail, it is a rejection of the colorblind rhetoric of the civil rights movement. Critical race theorists basically said Martin Luther King all that stuff was good, all it was necessary, but it didn't go nearly far enough in its philosophy. And it was far too accommodation, accommodationist um, and far too universal in its emphasis on humanity. So what we want to say is basically there's blackness and there's whiteness, there's black values and there's white values and they're not the same. Our society is built on white values that help white people. And there's no such thing as anything race neutral. You're going to tell me this test, this, you know, this test to get into college is race neutral. Well, no, it's not. It's actually built to benefit white people. And if you say less black people are getting into the school and it's just because they're not doing as well on the test, Well, no, actually, the test and the society are deeply imbalanced in subtle ways that are hard to recognize so that black people are disadvantaged. And all the all the markers you think are neutral are actually white structures in disguise. That's basically what critical race theory says. Um, And then the version of critical race theory that seeps into, you know, like these seminars and uh, colleges and teachers' colleges and high schools uh, is basically the Robin D'Angelo watered-down version of critical race theory that basically says, you know, if you're a white person, you should never disagree with a black person about race. Black people are always right about race. This is literally pretty much what Robin D'Angelo says you have to defer to a bl- any black person you're speaking to if the topic is racism. You are inherently racist by the fact that you are white growing up in this country. You could not have, you can't not be racist if you're a white person growing up in America. That's what she says. Mm. You basically just drink it in, you know, with, with your mother's milk. And in that way, she says it's kind of in a way not your fault that you're a racist. You couldn't help but be a racist but here's how I'm going to help you fight that. And as, as a Christian, you may recognize some of the similarities between this, this, this message and, and the notion of original sin, right? It's, yeah. It's you're born with a flaw that is not your fault that you were born with it, but by following a specific program, you can fight it and you'll never really get rid of it. But, so she is sort of trying to be a version of like a, a replacement Christianity, as John McWhorter put it. I thought that was a very good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And combined with this is a view of black people that is, to me, unrecognizable and actually racist, hmm. which is, so for instance, in the book, she says that a white person should not cry around a black person. You should right. not show tears around me, Sean, because the sight of white tears, according to Robin D'Angelo, triggers the history of past moments where white tears have led to a black person getting lynched. For instance, the white lady that lied about Emmett Till raping her. You know, her tears led to sympathy that that ended up in an innocent black man getting lynched, black kid in this instance. Therefore, you shouldn't cry in front of me today because I'll be triggered, essentially. This is what Robin D'Angelo thinks black people are like, which is insane to me. She basically thinks that we're children and that we're, we're, we're you know, more brittle than paper mm. and that we have no, not even basic adult control over our emotions and reactions. And I don't know what black people she's around, but it's, it's kind of astonishing that that is being sold as anti-racist hmm. when it's in fact very racist. Hmm. That's a great response. I enjoyed your conversation with John McCorder about this on his book, Woke Racism, where he felt the same about this. Like she, I think he said she had one experience and drew all these implications about black people in a way that is arguably demeaning and racist. Uh, two more questions for you, if that's all right. Uh, imagine we are sitting in the same room. I'm on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. And I said, Coleman, I have 100 marbles and I have three jars. And I want you to divvy these up where you think the heart of the problem is on racial relations today in America. One jar would be society. Are there societal systemic problems? A second jar would be individual responsibility. And a third jar would be culture. Would you challenge those jars, add a jar, take one away? If not, where would you place those marbles as best you can where the heart of the racial issues really lie today? So if by racial issues you mean the the gaps in achievement, do you mean the gaps in achievement between uh, whites and blacks? Uh, I think that would be a part of it, the gaps in achievement and also just the – I think what I'm getting at is the different views that people have about why there's racism in America, which probably leads to inequity in the way you're describing it. And the three jars people are looking at in terms of how do we fix this inequity, which for the most mm -hmm. part would probably be some of this is attitudes, but some of this would be the way you describe it as well. So I think that I would certainly put the vast majority of the marbles in the culture uh, mm. container. And when I say culture, I mean the, the norms and values that are the water you swim in as a, as a kid and as an adolescent. You can put the same person in a culture where everyone they know has gone to college and expects them to go to college. Everyone they know comes from a, a home where there, there's you know, no drug addicts, 
no drug dealers, um, people are employed. There are just a whole set of expectations you never even consider, uh, you never even think twice about because they're so normal. And there's books in the home and everyone can read well. You take that same person, you put them in a scenario where no one they know has gone to college or aspires to go to college hmm. because again, all these other people have no models of anyone who's gone to college. Um, people have kids at 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, everyone has someone close to them that is either on drugs or dealing drugs or, you know, one step removed from someone who's dealing drugs. You put the person in that environment, they become a very different person. And that's what I mean when I, when I say culture and okay, you, you might say, well, doesn't don't, don't systemic inequalities create the conditions, the, the ultimate reasons uh, for that kind of, those kind of behaviors. Well, maybe if you go back far enough, but the thing with the thing with cultures is that they're actually self-perpetuating. They have mm -hmm. a momentum to them that can outlast their initial causes. So, and often it's, if you change the system, a culture can persist. So there's a, there's a subculture, um, and when we, t whether, whether you, I don't know, I guess people used to call it the ghetto. I don't even know what the, what is the politically correct term now, but it's, it's, sure. you know, it's a culture my, my mom grew up in this in the South Bronx. And, um, I was, I was lucky to not grow up with it at all, but you know, you, 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 you take the same person, you put them in, in this culture where to, to attain status is to be the most macho, the most intimidating, uh, and to basically to rise to the top of a street kind of identity. That is, that is, that's a much bigger problem than systemic racism in my view, hmm. which is to say there is, there are totally ways in which the system is arrayed against black people. For instance, um, you know, the war on drugs. There are just so many more, you know, there are kids smoking weed at Harvard University anywhere they want. And there are kids in the hood that have gone in the revolving door of, of city and, and county jails because they're caught with weed. Introduced to the criminal justice system, put on a path for the same harmless drug that the next CEO of Amazon is smoking hmm. on a Harvard's campus right now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous how long that was and is allowed to persist, although it's, it's definitely waning. Um, and that's really disproportionately affected people of color and, and boys of color in particular. Nevertheless, you get rid of that, you're still left with a, a huge and fundamental problem of cultural upbringing being a major source of disadvantage and disparity. Hmm. So final question, I know this issue is not exactly analogous, but sounds like you describe your mom or your parents grew up in the ghetto, those challenges, 
that entailed. My dad did not grow up in the ghetto, but grew up with a father who was an alcoholic. Uh, my dad was sexually abused seven years, had a sister who took her own life. Pretty traumatic, painful poverty, childhood growing up. I didn't grow up with any of that. And he would attribute his transformation, becoming a believer in God, changing his life, and he has shifted it for my family moving forward. So practically, that's one way if we're talking pragmatically. Do you have any thoughts if you had put the heart of the marbles in the jar of culture, what it means to change culture? What does that look like? How is that done? Or is that what you're doing in your, your podcast and your, your life is about doing that very thing? I'm not sure I'm really doing it on my podcast. I think at most my I, I can be a model for for people that are fans of me, um, regardless of where they're from and what their circumstances are. But when it comes to changing culture, usually that has to happen. So this is where I guess the individual responsibility jar comes in as well. Mm. But it has to happen on a local level. You can't can't come in it's very difficult to come in from outside a community and change the culture in that community it pretty much always has to come from from the inside and there are lots of people um already doing this work i mean um bob woodson does a lot of this work i mean this is the kind of thing that the local church community for instance because it's all it often happens through the church has to come together and make an after-school program to keep keep kids out of trouble, keep kids doing positive things, um, youth mentorship programs, showing kids, introducing kids to you know people from their neighborhood that they may not have known that went to college or something or went to vocational school to show someone a concrete example of someone like them from where they're from that took a path into... Uh, a stable and and um, you know like higher income life, right? That's what people need. It, it's it's difficult to find to just find role models. It, it would be difficult for uh, an average kid from the hood to look at me as a role model because I'm not from the hood. I'm not from where they're from. It doesn't really matter that I'm that I'm black. I think most people concretely need models in their community because then it becomes hmm. real. Everything outside of that feels very abstract when you're a kid. Hmm. What feels real to you are the people around you. And so if you have a role model that that shows you that someone like you can make it to where they made, they made it, then it becomes real. And that becomes an actual path for upward mobility. Hmm. Coleman, I got a million more questions for you, but we've already pushed the limit. And I want to personally thank you for coming on and being willing to accept this invitation. I heard you say recently when you were interviewing a guest actually from CNN that you invite quite a few people onto your podcast who see the world differently and quite a few say no. I've invited mm -hmm. quite a few people who maybe see the world differently politically, uh, some on the issue of race, some on the issue of worldview. And you're one of the few that was willing to come on and just talk about these thorny issues, but model here like you do on your podcast. We can listen to each other. We can bring clarity. We can learn from each other. That's why I want our guests to go to Conversations with Coleman, our viewers, Conversations with Coleman on the YouTube. 
on the podcast and listen in. I think you'll learn a lot, even if you disagree with him on issues, on content. I think you'll learn how to carry out these conversations, how to think, and how to value truth. So, Coleman, appreciate a ton. Maybe sometime down the line we could do this again and take one of these issues and probe even further. But really appreciate you taking the time out to join me for this conversation. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. I love I love how you run your show. 